is a voice, the voice of fear. I'm going to be found out. And then they'll laugh. They'll suck air into their mouths. They'll wag their heads. They'll roll their eyes. And they'll know. They'll know how much I don't belong. How much I do not know. How much I can't cut it. How much I've done wrong. How many mistakes I've made. They'll post their Facebook posts, their Twitter feeds, their blogs, and the haters will be out to get me. They'll be dragging me into court or serving me my papers, claiming that they'll steal my children from me, that I'll never see them again. They'll gloat over me. They're setting a trap for me. I am paralyzed. That's the voice of fear. The voice of shame. I am such a loser. My life is one big mistake. If you knew me, you would not love me. There's something wrong with me. I'm worthless. I'm contaminated. I don't measure up. I don't belong. When others look at me, they're disgusted. Don't get too near me or you might catch it. I am ashamed. That's the voice of shame. Then there's the voice of guilt. Whether current guilt or past guilt. I've tried to stop so many times, but I keep going back to the same ugly secret sin time and time again. No one knows about it but me. And I live in constant terror that they might know. They might find out. I know it's wrong, but I just can't stop myself. I'm so fearful of being found out. And when they find out, I'll be ruined. I could lose everything. I am so guilty. Can you relate? These are the self-talk voices that we typically run to church to get away from and never talk about in church because we put the well-to-do face on and leave the thoughts outside and then pick them up again when we get home. And so the question I want to ask this morning as we're looking in the book of Psalms is what is our hope in the face of imminent ruin? What is our hope in the face of imminent ruin? Because this is a psalm. It's in the book of Psalms, which are basically Hebrew poetry set to music to be sung. And they get into the depths of our human emotion and they make us nervous. And we can't hide from them because they're inspired by God. The book of Psalms is just as inspired as the book of Romans. And so we need to hang out here this morning. And I'm hoping to give us words to have, words that we can speak when we are facing distress, shame, and guilt. Because this Psalm, Psalm 25, is actually it's an acrostic. I believe that David, when he wrote it, was intending to write a, a song or a prayer that will teach us how to pray. Each line starts with a different Hebrew letter of the alphabet. There's one mix-up around letters 17 or 18, but other than that, it's straight from beginning to end. And it's, I believe, intended to, to, to be a memory device, a mnemonic device so that you can recall how does this go. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to work through this psalm, and 
as I'm working through this, stop every second or so and say, is this how I pray? Do I pray like this? This is how the Bible prays. This is how God inspired David to write a prayer of guilt. So, what is our hope in the face of imminent ruin? Let's read through it together. And it will be a little bit emotional because we like things to be accurate to God's text and not impose a way of thinking. So he says this, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who wantonly, who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will He instruct in the way that He should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and His offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him and He makes known to them His covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me! Be gracious to me! For I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction. Consider my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul. Deliver me. Let me not be put to shame. For I take refuge in You. May integrity and a brightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. So Psalm 25 asks the question, what is our hope in the face of imminent ruin? Answer, our only hope in the face of imminent ruin is the limitless, unmerited mercy and wise counsel of our self-existent God. What is our hope in the face of imminent ruin? Answer, our only hope in the face of imminent ruin is the limitless, unmerited mercy and wise counsel of our self-existent God. So let's dig into this. He basically, he sets out three stanzas, verses 1 through 7, 8 through 15, and 16 through 22. 
He starts out by screaming out to God, desperately crying out to God for seven lines of the alphabet. And then he cuts to three to four lines of the alphabet and teaches the audience truth about God. Then he gets to the center point of the psalm, which I believe is the main point of the whole psalm, and he cries out to God for one letter. And then he goes back to three or four letters of teaching the audience again, three or four letters of the alphabet. And then he gets to the end and seven to eight stands or lines of the alphabet again. He, he cries out again in desperation to God. So it's God, people. God, people. God. And so that's how we're going to work our way through this as the audience changes. The first seven verses... To summarize, it's God, you must grant me wisdom and remember your legacy or I am undone. God, you must grant me wisdom and remember your legacy or I am undone. He starts out by fronting God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, O my God, the next letter. In you I trust. God is at the center. God is at the forefront and he's saying, God, you are my only hope. Do you pray this way? And then he describes what he's up against. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. None who wait for you shall be shamed. They shall be ashamed who wantonly, wantonly treacherous. Those who are out to get me with evil ends. Those who are illegitimate in their claims they bring against me. Those who are illegitimate in the arrows that they are flinging my way. They are wantonly treacherous. God, shame them. Shame, 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 shame. Some of you guys are carrying a lot of shame on your shoulders. Here is how to pray. In David's time, shame was not just an internal thing, which is some people in the West, um, we only see shame as, I wonder if they're looking at me. It's internal. Where David grew up and the world he was living in and in some Eastern cultures today, shame is a tidal wave of external ruin that plummets and hits you and all can see it and it staggers you. Some people don't need to go to the East to experience that. Some people have that kind of ruin in their lives as well here. But it's this overwhelming, I am undone and they gloat at my ruin. And he cries out, he says, I don't want this shame. Then he reminds himself, oh, those who trust in you will not be shamed. Oh, God, put shame on those who are bringing this against me. Now when you're faced with shame, and when you're faced with distress, and soon we'll see, faced with sin and temptation to it, you're not even sure which way to go. You read Psalm 1, where he tells you that, that the, uh, the wise... Walk in the path of God, the ways of righteousness. But you're saying, in the midst of this turmoil, I don't even know where to put my foot down next. And so he says this to God, next. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Make me, teach me, lead me, teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. He's bringing it back again and again and again. Repetitive to the point that it's redundant. God, to you, on you, your waves, make me, it's all you. God, do something. And this, many of you this morning, particularly after Thanksgiving, you're facing this. You're almost jealous 
at how thankful others are. Because you're facing this. What do we do? We pick up Psalm 25. Remember your mercy, O Lord, verse 6, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old God, your hesed covenant faithful, non-reneging, non-divorcing, non-turning your back on me, not stabbing me in the back, love. God, your love is eternally faithful. Remember me, Father, in light of your love, in verse 7, not according to my sins of my youth. The, the breadth and the depth and the width of your love is, is for eternal ages past, Father. Remember me in light of that love and not in light of my track record, the sins that I committed that I wish I could forget in my youth. According to your hesed love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. He continues to just say this, and it makes no sense. It makes no sense why you could come to God and say, forgive me on account of who you are, God, instead of what I have done. But that's gospel. And it's going to get even deeper once we get to verse 11. But in verses 1 through 7, he's basically said, Grant me your wisdom. Remember your legacy or I'm undone. Now, um, there are a class of people um, who are, we call directionally challenged, but there, there is a more serious diagnosis. It's called selective developmental topographical disorientation, SDTD. Selective Developmental Topographical Disorientation. For short, it's Geographical Dyslexia. Now, when people are struggling with this, this is no joke. This is actually a condition, okay? I'm killing it that it's not a joke. Um, when, when people are struggling with this, they have a dyslexia to right and left. It's not that they read things the wrong direction. They just spatially can't tell right from left. And so you step outside of an elevator and you start sweating buckets because you're not sure which direction to go. You go stay in a hotel, you just know you're going to forget what room number you're supposed to return to because the hallways just, they, they don't make sense. Um, someone struggling with this, they can get within a mile of their home and get lost because they took a different route than they always take. All right? It's uh, geographical dyslexia. Now, my wife Elizabeth has not been diagnosed with this but we think that she may struggle. And it doesn't matter, you know, go to a new city. It doesn't matter if you're in the same block. It's just right and left. It's, it, it can get dangerous. And that's why they created GPSs, uh, is so that no one would ever have to look at a map again. Now, Elizabeth also wears contacts or glasses, and without them, she's almost blind. Now, picture Elizabeth in a dark room, no lights, no glasses, no contacts, no GPS, no map. She is going to be without hope. And without God, this is the picture of us. This is the picture of us in the face of imminent ruin. And our posture before God is... Make us know the path of righteousness because we all have righteousness dyslexia. We're in the face of the heat of temptation or dealing with our past, dealing with our current or past guilt, dealing with 
the shame on our shoulders, and we don't even know where to put our foot up next. We don't even know how to get out of bed sometimes. And our plea is, make me know your ways. Make me, lead me, teach me. Lead me. Father, give me direction. Show me that path of righteousness. Because in this moment, I don't even feel like getting out of bed. Your application this morning is pray Psalm 25. Take this psalm home and pray it. God, grant me the wisdom and remember your legacy or I am undone by shame. When I am the darkening mist of paralyzing shame or awful guilt or internal temptation to sin hits, it is excruciatingly difficult to know where to put your foot next. You're directionless in that moment. So after you have sinned again, pray it. Psalm 25. In the midst of the temptation, before you sin, pray it. Before you get to the temptation, pray it. We're trying to wind the clock back before you give in and crying out to God for His salvation. When you remember the deed that you've done that has haunted you for a decade, pray it. When you remember the oppression, pray it. Psalm 25. John Calvin said this, the best and most powerful means of resisting temptation is to allow the memory of God's faithfulness to prevail in your mind. It's not quite knuckling it. It's gazing on God. Is this the way you pray? Next, he says, in verses 8 through 15, God, for the sake of your name, pardon my great sin. God, for the sake of your name, pardon my great sin. We see in 8 through 10, uh, he, he lists four uh, amazing qualities of God that He's good, He's upright, He's steadfast, He's faithful. Again, just again and again and again, marking the long-term eternal goodness of God that He does not renege on His faithfulness. And then after describing who God is and that He instructs sinners in the way. God is upright and He instructs, yes, sinners in the way. He leads the humble. The humble are those who have admitted that they are in need, that they need saving. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord. That's that path again. That's the path we're trying to get to. God, show me, teach me, lead me. It's this path of righteousness, steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. Notice there has been a transition in the person's life. First, he is the sinner that is getting shown the way. Now, he is the one who is keeping his covenant and his testimonies. That's the grace of God. That there is a progression in this person's life. And that's the teaching moment. We had crying out to God, verses 8 through 10, as he's teaching the audience about who God is. And now he gets to the penultimate central piece of the entire psalm, Psalm 2511, for your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. This makes no sense. It makes no human sense. For your reputation, God, pardon my great sin. Do you pray this way? See, it's God's name that is at stake, not yours. God's name is at stake when you cry out to Him for mercy. God is self-existent in His mercy. 
God is self-existent, self-sustaining, self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. He's infinitely complete and full and joy-filled and perfect in himself. He did not create us because he needed someone to love. He already had Father, Son, and Spirit in the Trinity. He created us that there is potential for His glory to shine more brilliantly as He in all of His excellence and perfection pours out love on sinners that do not deserve it. And He says, for the sake of my own name, I'll do this. It's for the sake of Your name, God, that we cry out for this. There's a a cry on the sake of His name and there's a cry for our need for pardon. This is how people in the Bible talk about being forgiven. They don't pray like this. Forgive me because I promise not to do it again, God. Forgive me because I didn't mean to do it. Forgive me so I'll have a better life. Forgive me because I got caught and I feel terrible about myself and I can't wait for this all blow over so that everybody will think I'm respectable again. It's, Father, forgive me on account of your name. For my sin is great. 1 John 2.12, we heard this previously in a 1 John sermon. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for His namesake. This is how the Bible talks about forgiveness. This word pardon, it's salah, to forgive, to pardon. And it's only used with the subject being God. No man is ever said in Scripture to salah, forgive. No man or woman can forgive you. You cannot forgive yourself. No matter how many times you try to forgive yourself, that's not where peace is found. Peace is found in, God, forgive me on account of your name, Salah. Forgive. It's only attributed to God. It's the desperate cry of forgiveness. It's the central point of the psalm. It's the central dream of humanity throughout the pages of Scripture. David is crying out saying, I want this. Jeremiah later in chapter 31, he writes this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on theirs, for I will salah, forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. David says, I want it. Jeremiah says, it's coming someday. Then Daniel, 50 years later, in chapter 9, as he's praying to God, he prays this way. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, salah, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Do you pray this way? They do. This is how a Christian prays. The Septuagint was a book that Jesus and the disciples and and other uh, Jews would have carried around during the New Testament times. It was basically the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek. And we know that they carried it because whenever the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, they quote that verbatim. 
in the Septuagint, when they, the translators decided to translate Salah, they used Helios, which means propitiate, to forgive. What does that mean? Well, in context, propitiate usually carries the connotation of setting aside the sin guilt which you possess against God. Only God can do it. It means to appease the rightful wrath which you possess against Him, to your divine judge. To have all the wrath of God against injustice and pride and self-righteousness, the hidden secrets of your, your past, the hidden secrets of your current heart, your return to time and time again, to have all of these things, this wrath, totally and entirely absorbed. That's to propitiate. To absorb that wrath would mutilate you. It would kill you. It would send you to hell forever. You need a propitiation in your place. A man named Jesus in a book written by Luke tells a story about two men who went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed and thus said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, propitiate me, a sinner. This is how Christians... Romans chapter 3, 23 through 25, Paul is describing this need. And he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. David was crying out for it. Jeremiah saw a day when it would come. Daniel clamored for it. Jesus talked about it, and then Jesus became it. Jesus is our propitiation. Hebrews says it again in chapter 2, that Jesus Christ, God made propitiation for the sins of the people through Jesus. This is what David is crying out for. It's what we need. In verses 12 through 15 of this same section, he then asks, Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being. That well-being doesn't mean his soul will have a lazy boy and an Xbox. It means that he will get God. That word translated well-being is the same word we translated good in verse 8, describing God. God is good. And then in verse 13, his soul shall abide in good and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord, that secret confidence uh, counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him. Who are those who fear him? They are those who realize they are sinners, that God is just and that only God, God will only forgive on account of his name and not their own. That is the one who fears God. And he makes known to them his covenant. So now God is training and discipling in the ways of His covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. So in 12 through 15, He's gone back to teaching the audience again that Yahweh gives wise counsel to sinners, sinners who fear Him. 
I've been blessed with friendships with people who are homeless or desperately poor. Lots, lots of different friends that I've had, whether here or in Chicago. And they have honored me with their friendship. They have blessed me with their friendship. And, and just for a, a tip, not everyone who is poor or homeless is looking for a handout. Many are looking for a hand up and, their, and friendship. Acknowledgement that they are human beings, really, one guy told me. But when you grow a reputation as a friend of the poor, sometimes you get false advertising. And so the people that I consider friends, we have a good relationship going. And then I think the network travels and spreads, and, and then some people will come knocking on my door uh, that don't have as good intentions. And so I can remember one time a guy knocked on my door and he said, hey, you look like a godly man. And that's usually when you know the conversation is going downhill. <laughs> you look like a godly man. I haven't had anything to eat in a week, and you have, and you should give me something because you're godly, right? You love Jesus, right? And uh, when we hear this, we kind of recoil. You know, we say, well, that's, that's just undignified. That's, that's shameful. That's inappropriate. Things are said like, go get a job. But get this. Forget about the homelessness for a minute. Casting yourself on the mercy of another because of your great inability is the exact picture of the only way to God. We don't think like this, so I'm going to say it again. Casting yourself on the mercy of another because of your great inability is the exact picture of the only way to God. Here's the situation. We are sin junkies. We're holding cardboard signs that we've scribbled Sharpies across that say this, we'll work for God's favor. And we're spending our days hiding our secret sins behind masks of self-salvation strategy. And we're saying, I'll try harder. I'll overcome this one, God. I've got this one. Nobody else needs to know about this. I've got this. I'm good. I can work my way out of this trap. And God is calling us to beg Him for forgiveness on account of His name, His righteousness, and not our own. We are beggars before the King of mercy. The application this morning is beg the King for mercy. Whether you are a believer who believed the, sinless, the sinner's prayer was for way back then, and it's actually for now as well, God have mercy on me, the sinner. Or if you're an unbeliever who has never tasted the grace of Jesus, beg for the mercy from the King. The application is beg the king for mercy. Leave your dignity behind. Leave your appropriateness, respectability behind. We are beggars before God. Mercy destroys pride. It's a recognition of inadequacy. We can't be dignified and desperate at the same time. My brother Jerome Gay over at Vision Church has said it this way. The object of my desperation will be the source of my transformation. Whether positive or negative, that which I desperately pursue, whether it is the forgiveness in the hands of God or it is the, the, the habits or the idols that I pursue that pull me down, I will be transformed by whatever I desperately pursue. So beg the king for mercy. Pray for your, his namesake. Plead for 
pardon on God's namesake, for your namesake, God, for your own glory, for the glory of your free grace, for the honor of your covenant faithfulness. Beg the king for mercy. Pray for your sin's sake. Plead the greatness of your sin as an argument for mercy. Not God forgive me though my sin is small. Not God forgive my sin because I've done more good than bad. Not God forgive me because you really don't have much reason to be angry with me right now. But God forgive me because my sins are great. Beg the king for mercy. It's impossible that any should come to God for mercy and at the same time have no hope for mercy. Because the construct of salvation is bound up in this sure goal, to glorify a self-existent God who acts in mercy on undeserving sinners for the glory of His own name. Beg the King for mercy. God does not save moral men. God does not save religious men. God saves sinners. If you're a religious person, a moral person, at least that's the way you view yourself, and you don't see your sin, you don't see yourself in a position of needing a holy God to save you, He's not going to. Jesus said, the sick need a physician not those who are self-righteous. That's why Jesus was hanging out with sinners all the time. As He came to those who needed a Savior. So first, God, you must grant me wisdom and remember your legacy or I'm undone. Second, God, for the sake of your name, pardon my great sin. Third, as we close this out in verses 16 through 22, He goes back to desperation to God and He says, God, see me and deliver me from this ruin. Because when you're in the midst of these situations that we described, you feel as if no one sees. No one can see you in your desperation. But this is how he starts it out in verse 16. Turn to me! It's very emphatic. It's it's as if he's trying to get the gaze of God. Look at me! Be gracious to me! I'm lonely and afflicted. God, don't you see what I'm going through? The troubles of my heart are enlarged. He says, I feel like I'm suffocating, that I'm drowning, that I have these troubles that are widening inside and that I will literally burst from all of this affliction. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. That forgive is nasah. It's not the uh, uh, salah, forgive as in pardon. It's nasah, which means to lift up. So first he said at the very beginning of the psalm, lift up, I lift up my soul to you. Now he's saying, God, lift up my sins from off of me. Consider how many are my foes and what violent hatred they hate me. So he's saying that he's got internal struggles. They're the troubles of his heart. He's got external troubles, the people who are out to get him. And so he just cries out, guard my soul, deliver me. Let me not be put to shame again. Shame. For I take refuge in you. Again, putting it back on God. It's for the sake of your name. And he ends it in verse 22, which is outside of the acrostic. It's an an additional letter added at the very end. And it says, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. I believe he has finished his prayer, and now he's praying for others. He stepped out of his individual lament and now he has gone into a one-verse community lament 
where he's praying for all of Israel. So, applications for this last piece. Pray your distresses and then pray for others. Praying this psalm leads you out of your world of sin. It leads you out of your fear and guilt. It leads you out of yourself and to the Lord's mercy and grace for you. Pray your distresses and then pray for others. Pray this psalm to God. Insert your own trouble. Insert your own distresses. You really don't need a lot of context there, right? I mean, when you read this psalm, you get it. You've been there. But as you're reading it, insert what is it that you're facing? What is it that you've done that you wish you could forget? What is it that you're currently fighting against that you wish you could overcome? What is it that people are bringing against you falsely? What is it that that is terrorizing you? Pray your distresses and then pray for others. Rehearse who God is and then let others into your private world. Welcome exposure and accountability. Don't pray Psalm 25 in a closet as much as you know, prayer closets are great. But guess what? That's not where we're supposed to do all our praying. First, pray Psalm 25 to God on your own. But then you need to invite others in, whether it's in O2, community group, one-on-one relationship. You're not going to overcome the shame and the guilt and the repetitive sin praying all by yourself. God did not make our church to be individuals, but a community. He made us to pray together. So invite someone up, take the scab off the wound, show it to somebody and say, pour grace on this for me, with me. Don't hide it in on yourself. And then pray for others. He ends it with praying for the entire nation of Israel. You pray to God. You cry out to him, you pray like this, you say it this way, that, that in this honesty, and this vulnerability, this lament, you pray, you ask others in, you encourage others in to help you, and then you pray for others and you go towards others because ultimately this sin thing is just pulling us tighter and tighter and tighter in on ourselves. Pulling us out of community. So let's pray now as the music team comes. Father, there's a lot of heaviness in this sermon this morning. I don't want to be naive and trite with our struggles. God, please do not allow people to hide. Bless us with the freedom of bringing our junk out. Bless us with the power and the ability to receive each other's junk. To realize that we're not forgiving each other. You are the one doing the forgiving. We're there to listen. Pray with. Take each other hand in hand to the cross. God, give us the ability to hear each other's struggles, the ability to take the masks off, to share, to struggle together, to fight sin. And for goodness sake, God, get us out of ourselves. For your great name, for the sake of your name, pardon us. Rip every ounce of self-salvation out of us, God. Free us up from believing that we can bring something to the table. 
count up your name. And the name that saved us, Jesus Christ.